Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome back to The Stacks. This week is a book club week, and we're talking about How Democracies Die by Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zblad. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and our guest this week is activist and organizer Harris Cohn. I love this show so much, and I'm loving making it with all of you. I'm so excited and grateful for this amazing community that we've built, and I want to give a shout out to those of you who have joined the Stacks Pack through Patreon. It helps to make the show a reality, and I know that I couldn't do it without any of you. Two of our most recent members of the Stacks Pack are Joseph Papa and Lisa Lalek. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a platform where our listeners pledge monthly contributions to the show in exchange for perks and inside access, and it connects you with our awesome community of readers. So check it out and join the Stacks Pack at patreon.com slash the stacks. We're actually now running a virtual book club for any Patreon member who pledges more than $3 a month. It's really fun, and it's a great way to connect with each other and talk about the books that we're all reading. Check it out at patreon.com slash the stacks and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the stacks. If you're not able to commit to monthly contributions, you can always do a one-time donation at paypal.me slash the stacks pod. Here's your weekly reminder to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening to us through Apple podcasts, please rate and review the show. Our most recent review comes from Tracy Fan, and no, that's not my mom. Uh, Well, it might be, but I'm pretty sure it's not. Um, They say, quote, refreshing, delightful, insightful for guys and gals who love reading. Tracy is a must. Huzzah! Very short, very sweet. Thank you so much. Um, If you haven't yet, please just take two seconds to post a quick review. It helps the show and it helps to grow our community. This week, we're talking about How Democracies Die by Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zblad. Barack Obama included this book on one of his most recent lists of recommendations. We recorded the episode before the list came out, so you'll hear me say, I wish Obama would talk about this book. I'm a little ahead of my time. President Obama says about the book, it's a useful primer on the importance of norms, institutional restraints, and civic participation in maintaining a democracy, and how quickly these things can erode when we're not paying attention. Don't worry, there are no spoilers this week. Enjoy. Okay, we are back this week with our guest, Harris Cohn, for another episode of the Stacks Book Club. We're discussing How Democracies Die by Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zblatt. This book is an examination of the current U.S. political climate and its relationship to other uh, governments that were once democracies that turned to um, authoritarian governments. It's very smart. It's of this moment, very of this moment. Um, What did you think of the book, Harris? I thought it was ridiculously of the moment. You put it well. Sure. And kind of a manual. I thought it was a good, it was literally an instruction manual for what our politicians should be doing. Right. Well, and also kind of how we got here. Absolutely. It really sets up kind of um, the scope of the situation in current U.S. politics. Um, I really liked the book. I thought it was really interesting. Um, 
one of the things that I really appreciated about the, about the book that's something that often irritates me in the way that politicians talk about this country is that our democracy isn't exceptional or unbreakable. And I think sometimes conversations about politics in America, it's all about like we're this shining city on a hill and we're so perfect and whatever we do is the right answer. And I feel like this book was was honest about the fact that like this American democracy can break too. Like you guys aren't special. And also putting it in context that this isn't the first time that America has been in a situation where, you know, our political parties don't agree or that the first time that there were politicians who have been, you know, attacking democracy. That idea that we are not as good as maybe the political sound bites make it seem like we are Mm -hmm. specifically Every politician seems like a rite of passage to stand up and say, we are the best country in the world, blah, blah, blah. Right. That idea was burned into me at a young age, Mm -hmm. coming from a family that we watched the election night together and whatnot. I I relate to that idea. The more that I've seen politics evolve from roughly when I got really into it 2008 to now, that idea has started to to crumble a bit. And this book really brought it crashing down did did you have that idea growing up as well no i'm a black woman like we you know there is a sense of reality about this country if you come from certain groups or backgrounds or if you've experienced life through certain lenses like i'm sure you know transgender people have different feelings about this country than you know cisgender people right like or disabled people or people who are confronted with the holes in our democracy um so no, I mean, my, my mom is white, my dad is black, and my dad was a pretty militant guy, and he was always made it very clear, like, you know, the system's a little bit rigged, and it's not rigged for you. So I never, I never really felt, like, I always knew there were issues. I think that's one of the most, as a white male, one of the most, like, reading books like this is a sideways approach to realizing that there's so many things wrong sure. with how we do things here. Sure. And for folks that are, again, as maybe just as a white person, for other white people that are seeing this moment and maybe not feeling like they can identify with it because mm-hmm. they haven't lived those traumatic experiences, this book I would highly recommend. Yeah. Because it puts it in terms that are less personal which is not necessarily a good thing, but it's much more approachable. Sure. And another thing that I really like this is that this book did that I is so rare in books written by white men. Uh, just you know, not to put you white guys on the spot, but this book really confronts head on the racism in our political system, and it doesn't shy away, and it and it really gives it the weight um, that. That it deserves. We're going to have spoilers on this show, but not really because you can't really spoil this book that's about American history. It's like if you haven't read the book, this conversation actually might make you want to read it more. Um, But one of the things that they focus on in the first part of the book kind of takes you up to how we got or like kind of takes you up through some other uh, democracies that were, you know, became fascist and dictators and Nazis and all that. And then it kind of settles in an American history for a little bit. And then it moves forward towards how America got to be so polarized. They call it the unraveling. And then it kind of leaves you with where do we go from here or how do we move forward or what's at stake. And in the section where it talks about American history, one of the things I really appreciate is that they basically make the point that after reconstruction, when the South, decided that they no longer wanted to participate and the North decided that they didn't care if the South participated. Black folks were disenfranchised and they lost the vote, which I'm sure many people know. But this book really drives home the point that the South became a single party region, just Southern Democrats. Black people were not voting. And that that strengthened the South as a place that had political clout. And without without changing any laws and working within the laws, they disenfranchise black people to allow power for more white people and to push white supremacy. And this book says that, and it uses the word like white supremacy and they really drive it home. And I felt like I, I really respected that they were willing to do that because so many other books would wiggle around it. And, and it's a great, it was a great example of 
the title of the book, How Democracies Die. Right. That it's not this catastrophic meteor right. striking the U.S. Capitol building and, right. and, and it goes away. Right. It's that malintentioned people get inside the system and work and start tearing it apart. Right. Exactly. So my favorite stat from that time uh -huh. period that's in the book is that black turnout in the South fell from 61% in 1880 to just 2% in 1912. Yeah. So that was the era of Jim Crow where mm -hmm. they were putting all these poll taxes and uh, literacy tests and all these things to do whatever they could to stop black people from voting. Right. And even in the book, they have quotes that are like, this is all legal and we're going to take the vote away. Like they really make sure that the reader understands that this was intentional and not something that just kind of happened, right. which I appreciate. Um, Cause it felt like I felt like for one of the, I read a lot of nonfiction and I felt for one of the first times in my reading that I was really um, seen by the authors that weren't from my perspective in a, you know, and not kind of sounds weird cause it's not nonfiction and it's not, or it's not fiction and it's not a story, but like that they really acknowledged that this is a thing and it came from like two Harvard professors. Like so yeah. they know, you know, right. Like the people in the middle of the establishment. If you right. Will. Right. In my last episode, uh, my last episode. Yes. Where you were the star. <laughs> <laughs> when I was lucky enough to be a guest, I said that this book made me uh, exceedingly angry. Sure. Talk, talk about it. The idea that that single statistic alone could not set off so many alarm bells. Sure. And I, I guess in 1912, maybe they didn't have you know enough. Maybe it was hard to understand that number or something like that. But Well, they knew. They said that that's what they were doing. They said that that's what they were trying to do. If you fast forward to, I believe it was 2013, mm -hmm. the Supreme Court invalidated something called the Voting Rights Act. Right. Which... Thousands of people marched for, hundreds of people died for, I think. Right. They basically said, we had this law in place so that black people could vote, but now that black people can vote, we'll let the states decide what to do. Because, like, black people are voting, it's fine, which was lovely of them. Right. The, all, the, all the voting changes mm -hmm. have to be, before 2013, had to be approved by the federal government. Right. Which is slightly less racist mm -hmm. than the southern governments of the sure. southern state governments and went and the supreme court took a scalpel to the voting rights act in this one little section and said not none of your changes have to be approved anymore you're right. good we, we we made it we're out right and let's just be clear it's not just southern states that have racist voting laws true i think that sometimes we put everything on the south and it's like yeah they were out overtly racist but there's also a lot of disenfranchisement that happens in the north and the west and everywhere in between so anyways, that, 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 was a, that was another reason that made me really angry. And they really lay out the evidence in a way that is, I don't know, maybe nonfiction at its finest. Sure. Like it, this book has a direction to it. Mm -hmm. Well, kind of. What did you think? Because so I at first I was like, oh, this book is going to be like anti-Trump. And obviously, like these are people who study democracy. Like they're not super into the idea of democracies falling apart. Like they are hyper aware of the warning signs. But I felt like they did a they they not only eviscerated the GOP, they also took pretty sharp attacks on the Democrats as well. Like, I thought that they were pretty fair given, given what's going on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the most interesting themes of the, of the book, there were like two main themes that they basically were shifting into the back half of the book a little bit of mm -hmm. where if democracy is dying, what are the things that you have to do to revive it? Mm -hmm. And the two main themes are one word, which is like the, the a word that I had so much trouble just understanding and identifying mm -hmm. with when they wrote it down is forbearance. Mm. It's like, could you come up with a more yeah obscure? Yeah, you know, like, it's like from Shakespeare, right? And then the other one is mutual tolerance. Mm -hmm. So, starting with mutual tolerance, just does someone you don't agree with politically have the right to exist? Sure. That's a pretty simple concept. Let's put that aside. The other one is forbearance, which is that the rules of the game mean that the, the rules of the game might not all be written down. And if you start operating outside of those unwritten rules, there's a crumbling effect where other people start operating outside, even further outside of those rules. Sure. And so I really, really appreciated how they 
made it clear that both political parties in the United States have bare fault for not exercising forbearance. Right. Well, what an annoying I thing. think also part of it, though, it's not just acting outside of the written rules. It's also that forbearance is allowing people to have the freedom to maybe do things on precedent and not based explicitly on explicitly on law. So something, for example, like the Supreme Court, there's no law that says that there's nine justices. We currently have nine and we've had nine for a while, but there's no law that says that the current president at any moment could say, I actually only want seven, therefore taking away two potential appointees for the, their successor, right? And so forbearance is saying, I'm just going to roll with these unwritten rules that we have nine, like there's no reason not to. But not practicing forbearance is trying to rig the rules or change the rules or be hyper rigid with the rules saying, oh, we have like, we're going to take away the filibuster, right? Like that was an act that goes against forbearance because it takes away power and it's something where you're going, well, this is within the rules. I can do it. You know, um, another example they used is of the two term limit for the president. That didn't become a law two terms until 1951, which is crazy to me. Like, from George Washington all the way through F, uh, through to FDR, there was no rule that said two terms and you're out. So even people that we think of as being like really bad presidents and crazy and egomaniacs like Andrew Jackson, for example, <laughs> followed that precedent. Like that's crazy. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, it makes me think a little bit harder about, you know, if you're, if you're running a social club mm -hmm. or if you're trying to get a dinner party together with your friends. Like the unwritten rules that govern how you do that. Sure. Where you don't show up at the party without food to share. Right. And well, like eat everyone else's food. Right. You could. You could. But or you could say. Totally crazy. Or you could say, oh, well, you didn't tell me to bring wine. Right? right. Like that would be what the political parties are doing. If I send out an email and I say, okay, Harris, you're bringing dessert. And everyone else, and you're bringing salad, and you're bringing this, and everyone else brings their thing plus a bottle of wine. And you're like, well, you didn't ask me to bring wine, so I didn't think that I needed to. Like that kind of like, it's actually on you. The rule doesn't say that I have to. So, so when you when you take that analogy and apply it to the political realm, what you're talking about is there are hundreds, literally like 535 of these people, 100 senators. Wait a minute, that's that's the 235 plus 100, 335 people there you go. that try as hard as they can to like read the rules and then try to either follow them so strictly that they screw over the other side or operate outside of them. There are a bunch of people not bringing wine to the dinner party. Right. That's ridiculous. And it didn't used to be like that. So in the book, they talk about how... And why didn't it used to be like that? Do you, do you remember what the because, point they make in the book? Because there were no black people. Because there were no minorities <laughs> There in were power. no people that they had to worry about. So they, they were able to have that mutual toleration for each other because they looked and they saw someone who looked like them and they understood, you're just another white guy like me. You're also a Protestant. Okay, maybe you're Catholic, but like, that's fine. Jesus still, right? Like that it was like we have little differences. Like you believe that we should be taxed 10% and I believe we should be taxed 11.5%, but I can see past that because that's 1.5%. But when the question becomes, you believe that I should have the right to an abortion and you believe that killing babies is murder or whatever, that's a, a bigger conversation. We're now talking about the rights of women versus the quote unquote murder of unborn children well, i actually think that's a that's a spectacular example because the while that issue has been hotly contested and led to the evangelical vote which is almost entirely white becoming a real powerful block of voters in this country there was still mutual tolerance which sure. is a good segue to their second theme you know what you've got an evangelical congressman from georgia right and a hippie congressman from california but they're both white so right it sort of works out but when you throw in black welfare moms are having abortions then all of a sudden or a good a good example of this is recently the the trump administration and their uh i think it was ice the immigration uh -huh. and, and custom enforcement punks tried to deny an a, a woman seeking asylum I think an underage woman seeking yeah. asylum, the right to have an abortion. Yeah, I think wasn't Kavanaugh because part she's of that? Latina. Mm -hmm. One of my biggest takeaways was, from this was 
if you can't sit down at the table across from me and tell me positively that you think I have a right to exist or a right to basic human rights, Mm -hmm. then we know who's killing democracy. I'm not trying to take sides, but I think that is a great litmus test for all this stuff related to college speech on campus and all these things. I don't know. That that seemed like this very simple pillar. Do I have the right to exist? Do my beliefs Do have the right to exist? As a, as who? A human or as a straight white guy or as a Jewish person? I, I'm saying that the, the litmus test to accept political disagreement mm-hmm. should be that I give the other side the right to exist. So I know as a straight white guy, uh, I see. my right, I have much more privilege than everyone right. else. Right. I just wasn't sure who you're asking. Like, if you're asking specifically someone who's on the other side, if you, Harris Cohn, do, but you're saying, in general, can the two sides sit down and say your views should exist and my views should exist, which That's is right. the neutral toleration. That's right. So let me ask you, though, you just brought up the college campus conversations. Um, and if you don't know what we're talking about, there's not so much recently because school's <laughs> been out, but like earlier this year, which feels like nine years ago, um, there were some there were some college campuses that decided to disinvite um, people from coming to talk on their campus. I think Steve Bannon was part of that. I think um, one of those Charleston, not Charleston, Charlestown, Charlottesville. How many different cities can I name before I get there? Charlottesville um, organizers that were disinvited. I think Kellyanne too. So you're saying that they should have been not disinvited. No, I'm I'm saying the opposite. Oh. I'm I'm saying that because because they don't believe in other people's right to exist. They don't. You don't have a stage. You don't have. I see. You, you, the rules which keep democracy healthy and strong are that you need to be able to tolerate the existence of another person. Right. So if you don't tolerate the existence of other people, you should you shouldn't be tolerated. <laughs> it's tricky. But, it's tricky. But it's kind of it's kind of not that bad. That's your that's your litmus test. Yeah. Okay. Based on this book. Based, based on, on this what book. I, sure. Based on what I read. Yeah, it's, it's the author's fault. Yeah. Not. Let's blame Steve, <laughs> Stephen and Daniel. Mm, idiots. Harvard idiots. Um, okay. I, so, so, I take so, that. So, that. so by extension, if anyone ever tells you the Charlottesville folks had every right to parade down that street. Right. And if, if you are ever struggling with your like weird uncle or aunt mm-hmm. at Thanksgiving with that. Mm, coming up. Just <laughs> Right. They, thank you. Just ask that basic question. Are the are the things that they're saying giving everyone the right to exist, or especially the people who disagree with them the right to exist? Sure. And if you can't do that, you don't belong in you don't your ideas don't belong in, in America in, just, in a democracy. I wonder though if what you're saying then means that your ideas don't exist because you don't think that those people's ideas should exist. I agree with what you're saying, but I'm not sure that what you're saying validates you. No, but see, I have <laughs> I, no, no, but I um, fair point. It's a it's a it's a tricky thing. It's tricky. Let me try to let me try to yeah try extend again. it. I believe that they as a, as predominantly white people mm-hmm. in Appalachia or wherever these viewpoints exist. Sure. I or think in they California. have. I think they have a right to be in America. I sure. think they have a right to breathe and take breaths, and that they're not sure themselves inherently destroying my my saying. ability to do anything. You think that I see. You're saying that they can be in the world, but you think that they have to change their views to be validated at the table, essentially. Open their views. It's hard. I know I'm kind of giving you a hard time no, about it's, it. It's a good, but it's it a good, is it's I, good. I'm not sure if that is like for me, that doesn't bear for that doesn't bear for me because I don't know if it's as easy to enforce judiciously. That's one of my biggest struggles with the book. Okay. Forbearance, sure. mutual tolerance. Sure. How, you, it's very hard to write right. down enforceable anything right. with that. Right. No, it is. It's a struggle. I mean, that's how they kind of say like that's what that's what keeps democracies s- sustained, which is also to say that democracies are very fragile. Super fragile. Because they it? talk about how other countries have constitutions based on ours or like word for word ours with like they change like venezuela to america which have then fallen apart which have fallen apart so the constitution itself is not actually as strong as we think that it is but that these two things the mutual tolerance and the forbearance are what are like the glue but the glue is not like super glue it's like elmer's glue is kind of what this book is saying team elmer's again got it in taking care of your health isn't always easy but it should be at least simple that's why for the last 
three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. One cool thing about this book, I'm not trying to plug it, but we are, I, I, mean, I am trying to plug it. We're, we're not getting paid to plug no, it. No, we're not. But and we didn't get it for free or anything. The... I learned more in this book about interesting things that happened around the world over the last hundred mm-hmm. years than I than I can ever remember learning yeah. in like a history class. Totally. Well, I also anything. learned crazy interesting things about America that I'd never learned. What what else? My thing that I learned that I was like telling everyone about, I was like, mm, do you know how we have super delegates? Which I thought this part of the book was so interesting. So if you didn't read the book, I'll give you a quick rundown. But if you read the book, I'm not gonna waste your time uh, running it down. Basically, before the convention systems were the way that they we know them to be now, insiders in politics were the delegates, and they made the decisions on who the political nominee should be. In 1968, after Martin Luther King was assassinated and um, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, there were riots at the Chicago convention, and it was a whole nightmare for the Democratic Party. And so everyone, both sides, were like, we should fix this because this is not great. So McGovern and someone else who I can't remember because he wasn't a presidential candidate later on um, sat down and they decided, okay, we're going to have delegates who aren't political insiders and they're going to follow the votes of the people from the primaries. So they did that for a little bit. Coincidentally, McGovern was the next nominee. I don't know how he knew that was going to work out for him. And then a few years later in the 80s, The Democrats were like, we like this system, but we actually want to add back our political insiders because we want to make sure that we have some control over the direction that our party goes in the future. And so superdelegates are political insiders, elected officials, people who are part of the Democratic Party who are given votes as delegates in addition to the people that reflect the voice of the people. The Republicans did not do that. So that's why we have superdelegates on one side and just all regular delegates on the other. And and the the principle, one of the really fascinating theme throughout the first part of this book is that 
populism can be this very weird catalyzing force that uh, can be very destabilizing to a democracy. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons to have superdelegates is that if you have a candidate, and there's lots of examples of these people throughout the years, uh, Joseph McCarthy, who's mm -hmm. a senator from Wisconsin, I think, is a good example. In the 1952, he started talking about how communism was invading America. Right. And he caused, he, he started accusing everyone of being communists, actually mostly Jews. Mm -hmm. So the idea of, I'm going to use the word fake news, mm -hmm. but there's this long history, especially in the United States and other places, of people using a populist message saying, we the people need to take right. down the powers right. that be, sounds very good, is usually laced with racism, xenophobia, uh, somehow trying to make yourself make themselves rich. Mm -hmm. Superdelegates are the antidote to that. Right. So when a super populist person shows up spouting all this crap, party insiders or the people that are people that have a lot of influence can recognize that and realize that it would be really bad for democracy if this person won. Sure. Because it would make the United States start tearing apart the Constitution and, right. and off you go. Right. So the Democratic Party, yeah. after the 2016 primary, which was very hotly contested mm -hmm. between Bernie and Hillary, just did away with lots of the influence they of did. superdelegates. Oh, no. It's, it's interesting. I, I mean, I was not a Bernie supporter, but I and I know people who were, were upset because so many of the superdelegates went for Hillary Clinton. But also, if you run the Democratic ticket and you're not a Democrat, you have to assume that people who are in Democrats aren't going to like you. It, I think the authors would probably say that exposing political parties to more populist influence, which is essentially what Donald Trump did, right. said, screw the system. No, right. These people don't care about you. Right. I'm your savior. Right. That's how he got elected. And so the Democrats are now exposing themselves to, to a that. similar type of candidate. Right who could be very much outside the establishment. Sure. One important thought that isn't totally in this book that I feel like needs to be read in parallel. Okay. One of the very interesting parts of this book is where they start talking about who starts doing away with forbearance mm -hmm. in, in the American system. Mm -hmm. And they trace it back to good old Newt, Newt Gingrich. Gingrich. Yeah. Newt. Shout out to <laughs> Newt. You should have Newt on the pod. He'd be a great interview. He's actually really smart. Did you see him on the 13th documentary? History professor. He's really yeah. smart. He's an asshole, but he's smart. So basically, the, the around the time of, I think in the late 1970s, all the, both parties start breaking the rules or going too strict on the rules to, mm -hmm. to gain political mm -hmm. advantage. And I think around the same time, money in politics becomes a much bigger problem. Right. So one thing that this book, I feel like, I bet they didn't have time to address was that the people working in Washington, as much as we love so many of them, have to answer to people that give them a lot of money. Right. And it makes all of these concepts trickier. Sure. So I, th that's a yeah that's pod for another day. I don't really understand campaign finance well enough to speak on it, but I know that, I mean, I understand special interests. I understand the idea that if someone gives you money, then you're beholden to them, right? Like, even on a small scale, like on this show, sometimes I get books for free to discuss. I mean, usually I ask for the book. Like, I don't let publishers tell me what they want me to cover on the show, but sometimes if I have a book that I know I want to cover, I'll ask for it for free. And then when I get it for free, I'm like, oh, I should be nice. But guess what? I'm not like that. I'm still mean. Picture picture this way. But like, that's just me in a book podcast, not me as the senator of Wisconsin. Well, so like if if I if I have to show up at work every day and constantly ask my boss for my job every two years, mm -hmm. I'm gonna damn well do exactly what my what boss tells want. me to do. Yep. So that's essentially the system we have now. Sure. Where congressmen go out to And Congresswomen. And Congresswomen go out to their funders and say, give me another two years. I'm going to advance the priorities right. that you care about. Also, two years is too short. That's a campaign all the time. Like, they should have four-year terms, uh, and or, it should be rotating. Or what if one of the most interesting ideas I've read about how to fix campaign finance stuff, okay. which we don't have time to go into, okay. is basically to give every person $100, and that's it. That's all the money that's available to spend on elections. So there's like 330 million people. Let's assume even the kiddies get some. Sure. That's like one airplane. Sure. It's like a single, I mean, it's a couple jet fighters every couple of years. So every person gets this money and you have to 
send it to someone. And if you don't, I don't know, maybe there's a way of distributing it based on You can't break wins. it up. I couldn't do 50 and 50. Sure, break oh, it okay. up. Great. So so that way, there's no no one can give money outside of that. Okay. So the CEO of Walmart right. and the store manager of Walmart number 6,734 right. in Green Springs, Oklahoma, okay. have the same exact amount of political influence. Nice. But what about, does that foster rich people to run for office? Can they how because how are they going to get to different districts? Look, I mean, there there are tons of Western democracies like France, for example. Mm-hmm. They spend two months campaigning. Sure, that's it. So you mm-hmm. don't have to spend that much to right. win because you're true. not allowed to. Right. So there, there's lots of reason. Uh, there's lots of cool ways I think we could do this better. I think so too. I just think because it's like you put so much pressure on, you give so much influence to rich people or businesses or independently wealthy candidates like you have to be really rich to run for office yeah, throughout this book and I, I would now i'm going to email the authors and see what okay. they say but as they talk about democracy in america diminishing and, and crumbling it, it it seems just that people the the folks in politics are answering to other people they're answering sure. to the folks not to their constituents not as much to their constituents right not good right uh that made me sad. This book is really good, but it does kind of make you sad and angry for sure. Like it makes you feel, um, it made me, let me speak for myself. It made me feel not only like I was learning a lot, but also frustrated that I, I was like, I want this book to be in Paul Ryan's hands. Like I want, like I, I said to someone, I was like, I wish that Barack Obama read this book so that when he did his next book list and he told everybody to go read all these books that he read, that he put this book on the list. Cause I feel like people would read it if he said to read it. But I guess every author probably feels that way. Like, I wish Barack Obama would read my book, please. Well, he he, he hits on the, this theme of democracy in pretty much everything he talks about, mm-hmm. both as he was leaving his presidency and now. Right. Where it, it is really up to the it is up to us to be to participate and to actually show up and vote. Right. Less than fifty percent of the people who are able to vote in this country actually vote but also so there's that and that's true and that's valid and i feel like that's an easy thing for people to talk about but i'm cutting you off because i want to make a point that is going to diminish what you're saying and i don't want you to go too far i think that in addition to less than 50 percent of the people voting which more people should vote if you're able to vote you should vote there's also all this systemic disenfranchisement that's going on that makes it harder for people to vote like for example if you are a felon or were a convicted felon in certain states you never get your right to vote back even though you have served your time you were convicted of a crime you know do do the crime do the time well you did the time so now for the rest of your life your life is ruined and you can't that's i mean what do they say taxation without representation right like that's that or these voter id laws that we're seeing put back on the record or or simply simply closing government services that get you registered or closing polling locations in certain areas that are predominantly black or latino or whatever it is but also have you ever read the book the new jim crow i know about it okay it's great also if you're not into reading that's what the 13th you could could watch the 13th so michelle alexander who's the author she talks about how and i didn't know this i didn't realize like if you've been convicted of a crime and you've served time or whatever you can no longer live in government housing you can also no longer receive government assistance like food stamps so let's say harris you go and you commit a crime you get convicted you go to jail you serve your time you leave jail you don't have any family except for your grandma your grandma lives in government housing your grandma if she takes you in could lose her housing because you're staying in government housing so even if you got your right to vote back but you were registered at an address that you weren't supposed to be living in would you risk your vote to get your grandma thrown out of your house Right. So like there's things like that where there are people who are able to vote who don't vote. And, you know, it's oftentimes black, Latino, immigrant, all these people that are marginalized and all these people who then become the bad guys. And you hear people being like, well, the black vote, the Latino vote. It's like, yeah, if it was as easy for black folks to vote as it is for rich white dudes, I bet more of them would vote. But there's a lot at stake, you know, and I think that like that is equally important and equally a problem, not just that people are apathetic and not showing up, but people are feeling like their lives are at risk. Or let's say, you know, you're an, you're you're a citizen, but your uncle is illegal and you live in Arizona. I, he's not illegal. Let me say that again. He is an undocumented immigrant because people aren't Thank illegal. You. I'm sorry. 
he's an undocumented immigrant, but he's living with you and you live in Arizona and you know ICE is crazy there. Why would you go somewhere where the government can write down your information? Or like, why mm -hmm. would you register with the government when you know who's in the White House? So like there's things like that that I feel like there are people who don't vote who can vote who feel intimidated to vote. Hear all of that and I completely agree with it. My my missive to the 50% of the people that sure. exercise the franchise. That's voting, by the way. Okay, thank you. Interesting. I, it's a name. It's a cool name for it. I have no idea where it comes from. Anyways, the people I'm calling out are white people. Sure. The straight up, the soccer moms and the your that person that sat in front of you at lecture. Sure. And the, your coworker, your like conspiracy theory minded sure. coworker. The people who who there's nothing at stake, right? Like if there's nothing at stake for you to vote or little, right? Like why aren't you just going and doing it? Your it's job a, has to give you the time it's off. A, it's a pretty selfish thing. Right. It's a pretty selfish thing to 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 not participate. Right. And it's just and and, and, yeah. and if but at the same time for the people that do participate, like like myself, I'll, I'm calling on myself here. Like I I know every single one of those archetypes that I just mentioned mm -hmm. who are in my life that you haven't called out that I haven't that like calling out sure you know, that you haven't been like come on Jim come vote with me come vote. today let's come. make sure you register that I think is a is a huge should be a pretty big wake-up call and yeah. and this book does a great job of emphasizing that how precarious of a place we are in right there, and, and one other thing that it yeah. does is it talks about some some countries that have gone through an authoritarian regime and mm -hmm. then come out of it mm -hmm. And how that worked and what that looked like. Right. It also emphasizes, though, the incredible cost of it. Sure. So here, here's the trade-off you have. Go talk to a person that you know doesn't vote and it doesn't cost them that much to vote and don't mm -hmm. bear the risks like you just mentioned. Right. For, and they can afford child care to go vote and all that stuff. You could go have an awkward conversation with another human being. Right. Or you could sit through what could be decades of god-awful human rights violations that either make you feel bad to the pit of your stomach or you're you're so crazy that you can't see it or something right or that affect you and or that like, might actually yeah. personally affect you that sure. child care that you can afford you might not be able to afford it anymore because they get deported right like and and you lose an, a cool interesting person in your kids or life. you're a jewish person and you're put in a concentration camp like this shit could be as minimal or as maximal <laughs> maximum yeah. as you want to take it like there are examples that go from censoring the media all the way through to concentration camps in nazi right. germany and poland so like while that sounds kind of hyperbolic it also this book lays out that it it could be nothing but also it could be the worst thing that ever happened to you in your country and your family and your neighbors i mean in the 40s the united states put tens of thousands of Japanese people in I can't believe we fucking did that. Camps. And people in the 50s were like, yeah, no, it was the right thing to do. Like, you it know. Took us a, it took the United States government a long, long time to apologize. Sure. I mean, but we're, American government has an ego problem and they can't admit that slavery was wrong. People are still trying to talk about how great slavery is and the Confederate yeah. flag. It's like, yo. Speaking of which, if for other resources that do a really interesting job of telling the story of the American South, Mm -hmm. and specifically black existence in the United mm -hmm. States. Uh, I just went to a museum in Montgomery, Alabama. Brian Stevenson's? The Legacy Museum. Uh, it's it's Brian Stevenson's. Did you read his book? Just Mercy is, I'm gonna that cry. is the next book. That, that is the book that made me cry the most. I'm going to cry right now. Thinking you should have it. that question. What book made you cry the most? Okay, well, you could have answered. You, you know, don't try to get on me. The, the, <laughs> the museum is in a former slave warehouse in Montgomery, Alabama. And it is one of the most absolutely moving experiences that I, I've ever been a part of. Like I've been to the Holocaust Museum and I've been to the Legacy Museum. Sure. There's no other museums worth going to before you go to those. In America that you know of. <laughs> At some point. I've heard that the new African American History Museum is supposed to be great in DC. Have you done that yet? No, you wouldn't. I haven't. It's okay. I haven't either. I haven't been. But um, Brian Stevenson is my hero. Here, here's just the last thing, just to try to maybe end on a more positive note. They put out some ideas in the book of like how do we move on, and one of the things that they say is like put people in political office are going to need to kind of 
humble themselves a little bit and work with the other side if they want to kind of circumvent having a huge national disaster, you know, because they basically say countries that that go away from democracy and then come out of it usually have to hit rock bottom essentially. Mm -hmm. And so they suggest, you know, if politicians care, they might try to do that work now before the country hits rock bottom. And I'm not a psychic. That's the thing about the book that I didn't love is that it just feels so current that there's no resolution whatsoever. You're like, oh, this book's already out of date. Like they don't even know what's going on with this and that, you know, like they don't know about the Mueller investigation really in this book. Like, you know, but that being said, they kind of say like, there are steps that could be taken, but they've never been taken before the, a country hit rock bottom. Did you have any ideas of what we could be doing? On a on a national level, no. I'm sure there are like thinkers out there who are plotting. Right, all they these mentioned things. some things in here. The most interesting, one of my most interesting takeaways from reading this book was uh-huh. just how distinct the national political world is from what's going on down your block. Right, locally. The local stuff is like. That, that's at your fingertips. Sure. So I felt like it was a great call out almost by not talking about it. it just by reading this book and realizing the national system is very scary, mm-hmm. very broken, mm-hmm. making my local existence the best it can be sure. felt super important. Right. But also like the thing about that is like, you know, maybe not your local, local next door, whatever, like block manager or whatever, but a lot of people, even if you're electing the people that you believe in, they are being sworn on as like anti the other side. Like that there's like, I mean, even Eric Holder basically said that if the Democrats win the um, Senate in 2018, that they should not confirm any Trump right. people, Supreme Court justice people. And like, while I understand that like want for vengeance because they stole that seat from Merrick Garland like thieves in the night. I also am like, that's not going to fix anything. Like I, I listened to him talk about it after I'd finished reading this book. And I was like, fuck man. Like if you, this judicious person, this attorney general, which, you know, feelings about that job too. Um, think this someone who deals with the courts regularly, like this is not good. So do, do you mean solutions like at that national level? I don't know. Well, one like of the solutions in the IQ book, do. one of the solutions, no, I meant more national. One of the solutions in the book was like the Democratic Party should move more towards universal benefits as opposed to benefits based off need. So mm-hmm. as opposed to saying that oh, yeah, for, yeah. for low income families, we're going to do food stamps, that they move towards a universal living wage or a higher minimum wage or... Um, universal health care, an idea that no candidate ever has ever wanted to give people in America, and definitely not the last president, certainly not Obama. Um, but things like that, that are, that are everyone benefits from them so that it's more inclusive of people yeah. who quote unquote feel like they're being quote unquote left behind because they're quote unquote from a coal mine, which all of that's in quotes because I believe that that is a narrative that we're being sold that isn't true. Something just came out saying that Hillary Clinton's voting base was less wealthy than Trump's, which, right? Makes perfect sense. Sure, but everyone's talking about how Trump has all these poor white voters. It's like, he he didn't. But that's the narrative we want to tell ourselves. And I'm sure people in a coal mine somewhere did vote for Donald Trump. But I'm also sure some people in a coal mine voted for Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I think I think that is the most that is absolutely the most like disruptive and interesting part of politics these days is that. The amount of inequality in this country that Mm -hmm. affects people of all races. Right. Is I would argue is strangling democracy. Yeah. And so. Whoever is able to grasp that and put forth a set of ideas that are not about populism right. and not about ripping the system down, right. but by making the system right. actually reallocating to serve the people. No, it's hard. I mean, I as I try to say this out loud, it sounds really populisty, sure. and it, which is like where authoritarians come from. Well, but I... but I think that that solution is a really good one, which is that. This is not a polarizing thing. This right, it's is... not need-based. Everybody gets it. I like it. I mean, I, like I, I that was the first solution that I'd ever heard that I was like, sure, that makes sense. Well, well and it, what, what's exciting about it is that it it alters the playing field right. from like winning and losing one side versus the other side. Right. And actually legitimately saying, I don't care who you are, 
let's lift all the boats up. Let's right. let's, let's try to float together. Well, you've heard this That's about cool. equity and equality. Have you heard about the difference between the no. two? So a lot of people say like we want equality, 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 and the the conversation that I've heard, the way that I've understood it, I think DeRay McKesson talks about this a lot, is that equality is that everyone gets the same everyone thing. Everyone ends in the same spot. No, equality is that everyone gets the same okay. thing. Equity is that everyone gets what they need slash deserve. So if you have a school in a really wealthy, public school in a really wealthy area, and they have like this amazing drama program and all of this and that, and they have a gym and whatever, then you have an inner city school that has like nothing, the roof's falling down, they can't drink the water. Equality would say everyone gets $100,000. Equity would say the wealthy school that doesn't need for anything gets $0 and this school gets the 200,000 because we need to lift everyone up to the same level. Now that goes against what we were saying about the Democrats saying not for need based, but the idea of equity is that this, the starting line is moved to the same place, right? Yeah. So there's these two different conversations, right? And maybe, maybe the equality part, the things that everyone gets the same thing should come from the government and the equity part should come from private interests, right? Like maybe that's the way that you separate it so that, that responsibility of deciding who is worthy and who is not is not placed on the government. All those ideas were new to me <laughs> and so interesting. And if everyone went and read this book, if if those fifty percent of the people that don't vote went and read this book and then had that those ideas like had it right even a little bit of a thought about it, it would make things in this country a little bit better, I think. Yeah. Well, that's a nice way to end. I normally ask you what you think about the title of the book, but it seems pretty straightforward. I liked it. And I love the cover and I love the inside. The hardback is orange. I don't know. Really like I was into, I'm into the way the book looks. It's, it's a good looking book. It, it has a, it has a really in your face feel. Yeah. What the subject matter yeah. is. And I'll just say this. We are not able to talk about everything in this book, but there's a lot here, a lot more history stuff that we didn't really touch on. And I highly recommend this book. I didn't think it was the greatest book I've ever read, but like for this moment in time, certainly feels important and needed necessary i mean you would recommend the book to the people obviously absolutely and you'll get through it really fast it's short it's 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 300 pages but only 230 of them are not notes so unless you read all the notes it's not that long um okay harris thank you so much for being here thanks for having me love the love the snacks oh yeah thanks we we try here. He's pointing to my bookshelves that are not in this room again, like he did on the first episode. He's such a jerk. Um, all right, guys, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Um, and until then, I'll see you in the stacks. That does it for us this week here on the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to our guest, Harris Cohn. Don't forget to check out our virtual book club over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the stacks to join. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagiragis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. I'll see you all in the stacks. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.